Well, what an interesting time we live in these days. I, uh, probably not the only one who has thought throughout the week as we continue to get news of things going on in our world that this just doesn't seem right. It seems odd. I think in many ways, this pandemic has revealed just how comfortable we've become. Because in past generations, people knew that suffering was inevitable. Life was short, and it was filled with challenges. Things like famine and, and pestilence and, and war were ever-present realities. These were normative for the day, and so everyone knew that life was fragile. But I think in our world today, we've lost some of that sense. By and large, our lives have been mostly comfortable. And we've been able to have what we want and enjoy what we have. After all, we're a high-tech society, right? We're globally connected. We are continually advancing. We find cures for diseases. We have solutions for failing economies. But then we encounter this pandemic and we all realize we're not as much in control as we thought we were. Our comfort and our joy is replaced by fear and anxiety. It has unsettled everyone around the planet. And so the question is, how do you endure during difficult seasons in life? And not just endure, how do you actually grow in the midst of a crisis? You see, that was Paul's concern for the Thessalonian church. He was worried that they might abandon their faith in the midst of a crisis. That life's difficulties might cause them to lose heart and therefore lose hope in that gospel message of faith in Christ alone. Much like the parable that Jesus told of the seeds and the, the seeds that fell on rocky soil that perhaps they would be able to, to receive that with that gospel message with joy and immediately respond, but then when affliction and persecution came, they abandoned their faith and, and fell away. That was Paul's concern. And so he prays that, that they might not only stand firm in their faith, but they would excel still more. That they would grow and be strengthened. That not only just endure difficulty, but be, be strengthened in the midst of it. And Paul sends Timothy back to the church in Thessalonica just to find out how they're doing. And in our passage this morning, we're going to learn what he finds out when he gets there. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come and open your word, we want our hearts to be open to the truth that your word speaks into our lives. We want uh, to invite you, Lord, to challenge us in ways that we need to be stirred and to strengthen us in ways that we need to have some help. Lord, we just ask that you would work through our time this morning to bring truth into our lives for the glory and praise of your name. It's in the name, the strong name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So if we pick up where we left off last in Thessalonians, in chapter 3, Paul writes these words. He says, Therefore, we could endure it no longer. We thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, 
our brother and God's fellow worker in the Gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, we were with you. We kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor should be in vain. You remember, Paul tried several times to get back to Thessalonica to see the people in the Thessalonian church, but for whatever reason, Satan stood in the way and prevented him. So he now sends Timothy to go find out how they are doing and to encourage and strengthen them while he's there. Paul knows that they will encounter hard times. It's inevitable. So he wants to prepare them for things that are coming. So he takes some time and he shares with them the key to enduring difficulty. And I want you to listen really closely to this because it's really important. He says, the key to enduring difficulty is to expect difficulty. (laughs) Okay, it's not that complicated. He said the key to enduring difficulty is to expect difficulty. He says, we kept telling you in advance that we would suffer affliction. And in fact, we did. Suffering is not something that we can avoid. It's a part of the human experience. So we endure better when we know it's coming. It's kind of like the game of baseball. If you, you're not going to be successful in baseball if you don't learn how to hit a curveball. Not everything in life is going to be straight and right down the middle. Because when we get caught off guard, that's when Satan has his way. He'll turn our difficulties into doubts tempting us to abandon our faith and find an easier road, something that doesn't have so much difficulty, even if it includes compromise. You see, his ultimate goal is for you to trust in anything other than God. Lose hope in times that are hard. Paul has been praying that this would not be true for the Thessalonians, but he had no idea. So let's see what Timothy found when he arrived. Continues in verse 6, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as much as we long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which you rejoice before our God on your account? And and we, night and day, keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. The news from Timothy was a welcome relief for Paul. Not only were these young Thessalonian Christians surviving. They were thriving. Paul says that all the the suffering that we endured, all that affliction that we encountered was worth it just to know that you're standing strong in your faith. It's the same idea in 3 John verse 4 when John says, there is no greater joy than to know that my, my children are walking in the faith. And 
When he says children, he's not talking about his biological children. He's talking about his brothers and sisters in Christ, the family of God. And Paul is saying the very same thing here. The Thessalonians are like his family. Nothing encouraged him more than to know that they are standing strong in their faith even in the midst of persecution. He still prayed to see them in person. That was still his desire. He wanted to encourage and help build up their faith in places that they are lacking. And he'll address some of those issues as the letter continues. But for now, in this moment, his heart is filled with praise. And we see that being poured out in those next verses where he says in verse 11, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men, just as we also do for you, so that he may be established in your hearts, unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. See, there's a topic in Paul's letter that he keeps repeating. He's done it in every chapter we've looked at, and he will continue to the very end. We see it at the end of verse 13, where he talks again to the Thessalonians about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul knows that part, part of enduring difficulty is the hope of something better. And Paul is reminding the Thessalonians that something better is on its way. The good news of the gospel is built around the promise of Christ's return. Jesus not only died for our sins, taking the punishment that we deserved upon himself, but he also rose from the grave, conquering the power of death. And in the Bible, it talks about his resurrection as the first fruits. Let me give you an example of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who are asleep, those who have died. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But in each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and after that, those who are in Christ at his coming. The gospel says that what is true for Jesus is also true for those who belong to Jesus. That's why Paul says that in the day of Christ's return, he will establish our hearts unblameable in holiness before the throne of God our Father. Jesus, the one who is unblameable in holiness, will establish his people unblameable in holiness. What is true for Jesus is also true for those who belong to Jesus. In Paul's letter to the Philippians, he describes it this way. He says, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. We're a work in progress. There's no doubt about that. There's no perfect people. But on that day when Christ returns, we will be made perfect and complete. We'll be established unblameable in holiness because of the work that Christ has done. And Paul knows if our eyes are fixed on Jesus, 
then our lives will increasingly look more and more like his. That's where he goes next in our passage, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, finally then, brethren, we request and exhort in you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as to how to ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of our Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Paul will address some specific areas where we are to live a holy and blameless life. But before he does, he lays a foundational truth to build upon. He says sanctification is God's will for your life. And that's true for everyone who belongs to Jesus. So if you've ever questioned, I wonder what God's will for my life is, here it is. God's will for your life is for you to increasingly become more and more like Christ. He wants to transform your life to help you become everything that he's created you to be with all that goodness built into his design. It's kind of like those shows that we see on TV when they come in and look at a house. It's old, it's dilapidated, the, the carpet's nasty, the wallpaper's falling off, the cabinets are rotted, and they just go in and basically gut the place, right? They pull all that old stuff out and they come in with all new things. They build new custom cabinets. They put in new floor coverings. And I mean, it's a dream home. It doesn't even look like the same house anymore. Well, that's exactly what God wants to do with your life. He wants to transform your life into something new, something beautiful, something that's consistent with his perfect will for you. In Philippians, Paul describes it this way. He says, for it is God who is at work in you. Now, think about that. It is God who is at work in you. He goes on and says, both to will and work for his good pleasure. He's telling us that God is, not only gives us the desire, but the, the ability to, to fulfill what he desires for our life. I think that's incredibly encouraging just to know that like that remodel, he's pulling old things out. He's putting new things in because you are a new creation in Christ. And if you want to know what that blueprint looks like, then just look at God's word because that's God's blueprint for what it means to transform our lives. That's why Paul says, look, you're on the right track. You've been diligent to live according to the instruction of God's commands. But sanctification is a project that's going to last a lifetime. So keep doing what you're doing, but excel still more. And then he highlights three specific areas that are really important. They are purity, love, and allegiance. I know your bulletin says diligence, but allegiance fits better, so stick with me here. The three areas where we grow to become more and more like Christ are purity, love, and allegiance. Let's look at the first one, beginning in chapter 4, verse 3, where Paul says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother 
in a manner because of the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but sanctification, purity. Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, as we think about this, let's not forget the culture that the Thessalonians lived in. It was a pagan culture filled with the worship of pagan gods. And that worship often included sexual immorality. So in that culture, sexual indulgence was a norm in that culture. And to be quite frankly, we might live in a different society than they do, but sexual indulgence is still a cultural norm for us. Paul describes it in verse 5 as lustful passion. When he does that, he uses a very interesting Greek word. It's called epithumia. It literally means over-desire. It's a desire that exists over or, or beyond the boundary of God's intended design, which is why Paul identifies it as something that the Gentiles do who, who do not know God. Because apart from Christ, we are a slave to sinful desires. We indulge in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. It's kind of like a car heading downhill without any brakes. When you are ruled by those fleshly desires, they increasingly gain momentum over time until the point in which you no longer control them, they now control you. And it's only a matter of time before you crash and burn. There's a lot of people, including yourself and those around you, who are hurt and in pain because of it. But Paul reminds the Thessalonians, look, that's not who you are. In Christ, you are no longer a slave to selfish desires. In in a way, the the Holy Spirit is like a a new set of brakes. He protects you from, from reckless living, puts you in places where God's goodness can be revealed. We only fall into sin when we don't use our brakes. When we yield to the Spirit, when we yield to the Spirit, our life looks very different than what you see in the world around us. And it's okay to be different because that's God's will for your life, to be set apart, to increasingly become more and more like Christ. Paul will later tell Timothy when he writes to him, he says, flee youthful passions and instead pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with all those who call upon the name of the Lord with a pure heart. So what this is telling me, if if you've got friends that don't share your same commitment to purity, then get some new friends. Because God will not turn a blind eye to unrepentant sin. And I don't know if this is the case or not, but just maybe this might be one of the reasons things are so messed up in our world today, right now. We need a wake-up call. And we need to hear, just as Paul tells the Thessalonians, he's warned us. God's purpose is for his people to live holy lives so that what people see on the outside is a reflection of the one who is at work on the inside. 
Purity is an essential quality of the Christian life. Look at how it continues in verse 9. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do practice this toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. As we've gone through this letter, Paul has often encouraged them for their labor of love. That's something that they've been doing very well at. But he does something really interesting in these two verses. The beginning of verse 9, he uses the Greek word phileo for love. Okay? He says, you love the brethren. Phileo, that word phileo is a brotherly love. That's why the city of Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love. It describes a friendship affection. It's a, a fondness for someone or something. And Paul says, you do this well. You are loving the brethren. Then he goes on and says, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. But here he uses a different word for love. He uses the word agape. Agape is the word used to describe the love of God. It is a self-sacrificing love. And this is intended to be the trademark of the Christian church. Because unlike friendship love, where we love people who are a lot like us, agape love crosses all kinds of, of social and racial and ethnic boundaries. It, it's a love that exists where maybe the only thing you have in common is Jesus. And it's enough. So Paul encourages them to, to continue in their brotherly love, but, but excel still more. Because a self-sacrificing love is an essential quality of the Christian life. As Paul tells the Philippians, he says, in humility, consider the needs of others as more important than your own. That's agape love. That's a self-sacrificing love. That should be the trademark of the Christian church. Look at how he continues in verse 11. He says, and make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we have commanded you so that you may behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. Now, I think it's really important to understand the, the cultural context in which this admonishment comes from Paul. Because in the Roman society, you had a, a social system known as patronage. It was like a kind of a hierarchy of social status where a, a patron was a, a benefactor of what was called a client. So you had patrons and clients. The patron might provide food or, or shelter or some kind of financial support to the client. And in return, the client would give some kind of service or allegiance to the patron. The, client, the more clients that a patron had, the more important they were in that society. And that importance also benefited the client. So it's kind of a win-win situation for both of them. But these relationships were always leveraged for some selfish gain. There were always strings attached. Because if you were a client, you were expected to follow the, the, the political aspirations of the patron. You would vote like they would vote. You would support what they would support. You had to follow them in their religious practices. So 
So whatever they did, you were obliged to do as well. It was a social network in which someone was able to gain status. Today's world, we might say the number of followers you have on Twitter or the number of likes you have on Facebook or Instagram. It was a way to gain influence. And so what Paul is essentially saying to the Thessalonians is don't play that game. Mind your own business. Work with your own hands. Don't be looking for favors. Be recognized by your own good deeds, not by your social status. After all, you belong to God. You give your allegiance to Jesus. That's who you follow. He's telling them, look, Christians, both then and now, need to be set apart by their purity, by their love, by their allegiance. Despite all the social norms of the day, we are called to be different. And and I understand that that difference may put you on a collision course with our culture. And that collision may create all kinds of, of pain and suffering in our lives. But God has a way of using our suffering to strengthen our faith. So that we're not just enduring difficulty, but we're actually being strengthened by it. And don't forget, the best way to endure difficulty is to expect it. Know that it's coming. We let the Bible speak for itself. We want to follow the Lord in all His ways. You see, we should long for the Lord to return. We should long for the day when Christ comes. That day when we are made unblameable in holiness. The day when God finishes the work that He has begun in those who belong to Him. You see, we don't ever have to worry about what's coming as long as we're ready for who's coming. Did you get that? We we don't ever have to worry about the next pandemic or the next problem that happens within our world. We don't have to worry about what's coming as long as we're ready for who's coming. In order to be ready, we take God at His word and we don't put words in His mouth. We let the Bible speak for itself and then we align our lives to do what it says. We are sanctified, set apart. So if you're single, live in abstinence. If you're married, then honor the covenant relationship of marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime. Live out of the identity that God has given you, not one that you discover for yourself. Say no to worldly values because you believe that God has a better yes. It's okay to be different, even if you have to suffer because of it. Let your love know no boundary, even to the point of, as Jesus calls us, to to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Be humble. And don't find your significance in social status. You belong to Jesus. You're a member of his family. In fact, the Bible says that we are a co-heir with Christ, which is absolutely incredible when you think about it. You are a co-heir with Christ. It goes on and says, and when you share in his suffering, you will share in his glory as well. 
Look, there's a lot that is going wrong in our world today. There's a lot that's creating fear and anxiety all around us. And because of that pandemic, people are seeing how fragile life really is. It's always been fragile, but when you're comfortable, it doesn't seem to strike you as much as whenever you have fear and anxiety. And so what a great opportunity in the midst of that reality, in the midst of all the unsettled uneasiness around the world to speak of a sure and certain hope of faith in Christ alone. Standing strong in our faith, especially during this time. May we excel still more. And if you haven't put your faith and trust in Christ, and you find yourself in a place of fear and anxiety, I would encourage you to use this as an opportunity to put your trust in Him. He says, come to me, all you are weary, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Trust in Him and what He's accomplished on your behalf. He will hold you fast. So with that in mind, as we go to our closing song, I want to encourage you to take some time to look at the questions that were provided for you to consider as a family or with friends, whoever you're with. And the first question is this, what does it mean for your life to look different than the social norm of our day? And what are some areas where you can excel still more? What are ways that you can grow in faithfulness? That's the first question. The second question is, what are some reasons it's important for us to look forward to Christ's return? Paul is repeating this all throughout the letter, so obviously it's important. So talk about that. Why is it important to look and to long for Christ's return? And then finally, take some time to consider that glorious truth of what it means to be unblameable in holiness before God. And just consider for the moment who you are through the lens of how God sees you. Unblameable in holiness. That's a remarkable thought. Consider that as you spend time together.